You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Today's sermon is from John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word with an anticipation of you addressing our hearts. Father, I know these people here may be listening to me, but I pray that it is your voice they hear. Father, because you have the words of life. You know every heart here, you know every circumstance around every person who is in this place. You know what they're facing in their, in their personal life. You know what they're facing in their family, in the workplace, in their neighborhood, in their finances. So Lord, we pray you would address us with those words of life. Lord, help me as I open your word to be faithful to your word and to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was December 1977 in the little-known nation of Central African Republic that an extravagant coronation took place. His Imperial Majesty Jean Bedel Bokasa was crowned ruler of this small nation. And here's what took place in that coronation. A coronation that actually had an official choreographer. It was a French choreographer who who designed what took place. So on the morning of December 4th, the parade began. And it began with just these trumpets blaring and these huge drums being beat. All of this was announcing the arrival of Bokasa. The procession started with eight of his children. They would be moving down the carpet in order to find their seats. Jean Bedel Bokasa II, who was the next heir to the throne, he followed and he was dressed regally in this admiral's uniform and it was covered with gold braids. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the main throne. Next came Catherine, who was Bacasa's favorite wife. 
she was wearing a $73,000 dress that was just strewn with pearls, if you can imagine, in 1977, a $73,000 dress. Bokasa himself arrived in a gold eagle imperial coach that was drawn by six matching majestic horses. It was quite an affair. He wore a 32-pound robe that was decorated with 785,000 pearls. And it too had gold embroidery on it. And on his head, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths like what we would imagine Roman emperors would have worn at one time. And as the march of, the, of this parade came to an end, Bokasa seated himself on this elaborate, gaudy throne. He took off his golden crown of laurel wreaths, which was topped with an 80-carat diamond. I can't even imagine how big that is. An 80-carat diamond. He placed it upon his son's head. And of course... From there, many other things took place, but that was so much pomp and circumstance. Sadly, two years after this coronation, he was kicked out of the nation. A coup had overthrown his, his government, which was pretty corrupt and pretty vicious. Well, maybe not as corrupt as that coronation and that government, we do see other coronations and other nations that are surrounded with pageantry. There's the crowning of a new king or a queen in England. We just saw that recently. And all the pomp and the spectacle that goes with that. Even in our nation, there's the celebration surrounding a new president who's sworn into office. On inauguration day, usually the newly sworn in president walks down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House with much fanfare going on, usually from the people who elected him. In one sense, all this is much to do about nothing. These are all earthly kingdoms with earthly rulers that will all come to an end. But there was one coronation that happened almost 2,000 years ago that its importance remains to us today. It was just read from, for us from John chapter 12, and it described what is commonly known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This was a spectacle to behold. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was so dramatic, it was so key, that each of the four Gospels actually record it for us. So with all the fanfare and the shouting and the cries from the public, what's interesting here is this seems to be somewhat of a departure for Jesus. And from his usual way of operating, the people were crying out, Hosanna, the people were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name, blessed even our king. This seems to be such a different approach than what we've seen before in the Gospels. Many times in, in these Gospels accounts, Jesus would withdraw from public view and from public ministry and even as his fame grew he would often remove himself from the clamor and remove himself from the noise of the crowds that were following him matter of fact he had just done this in chapter 11 after he raised Lazarus from the dead he withdrew 
In verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. But yet here we find him not only entering in, but going forward with the celebration that was surrounding him. Why was he doing that at this time? Well, simply put, he knew the reason why he withdrew before was because he knew that his time had not yet come. He withdrew to avoid the pressure that the people were trying to put on him. So what changed here in chapter 12 was that Jesus knew that the day and hour was quickly coming for him to fulfill the very mission for which he came to this earth. It was time to fulfill the purpose for which the Father sent him. It was time truly to set in motion the events that would ultimately lead to his death. His entrance into Jerusalem with all the accompanying attention, it was still not to gather an army. It was still not to garner political power. It was ultimately to force the hand of the religious leaders and to move events along towards God's intended end, His intended purpose. When Jesus actually entered Jerusalem, it was during the Passover, at the beginning of the Passover. Jerusalem, from what we can determine from history, had a population normally anywhere from 40 to 70,000 people. So it's a pretty good-sized town for that day. With Passover happening, and everyone called to come to Jerusalem to to celebrate it, that number was probably closer to 400,000 people. That had all come there to celebrate Passover. And here's what I think is particular and what we're getting a sense of from this passage. That the name of Jesus would have been on the lips of so many of those people coming. They've been hearing rumors. They've heard this report. They've heard that report. And then suddenly they begin to hear this account of Jesus actually bringing a man back to life after he had been dead for four days. There was a sense in which Jesus was a huge drawing point probably for these people. They were looking for Jesus. Where would this man be? Where could we see him? What was going on with this man? There would have been anticipation for the people there that someone who seemed to fit the bill as the Messiah, that he was actually on scene, that he was actually coming to Jerusalem. They would be delighted to see Jesus, the one that they had heard, and some of them had even seen themselves, were personally able to bear a witness, that they, had, they were able to, to see Jesus was this incredible miracle worker. He stirred in people an excitement of what might happen next. The crowd of people... <laughs> we get this sense again, was hyped for some kind of dramatic event that was going on. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and starts walking into the streets of Jerusalem. And people begin to praise him and people begin to exalt and people begin to cry out. And people, we find out from Matthew, they were taking off their cloak to put on him, to put on on the road in front of him. 
People started grabbing palm branches. And the way it's actually written here is that Jesus probably started walking and then at a specific point in time, he had prepared for him to, to, to ride an actual donkey. He then moves to the donkey where they had put some of their cloaks and began to ride that donkey, an unbroken donkey, the scripture tells us. And as he was doing this, people began to wave palm branches at him. And they began to place palm branches on the road in front of him. And people began to do these incredible things, singing out, crying out, in praise to Jesus. Well, while palms were part of the Feast of Booths, and we talked about that earlier when Jesus was, was part of that celebration, palms were not part of the Passover celebration. Passover, if you remember, was this solemn remembrance and this gratitude celebration of how God delivered his people, the Jewish people, from Egyptian captivity. And God did this by sending the tenth and final plague upon Egypt. He did this by sending the angel of death who would go throughout Egypt. And here was what was set up, that those whose door mantle was covered in the lamb's blood, the angel would pass over. The angel would, would go around, so to say, would pass over. Those whose door did not have lamb's blood on it, which would have been the Egyptians primarily, the angel of death would take the firstborn of that house. And it was through this tenth and final plague, so to say, that Egyptian oppression and over 400 years of slavery was brought to an end. God delivered them, richly delivered them, gloriously delivered them, and brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the land that he had promised them. This was a pivotal moment in Jewish history. But waving palm branches was not part of this celebration and feast. So it sets up why was that happening with Jesus? What were those palm branches about? Palm branches were a symbol of the Jewish nation. Actually, to wave a palm branch was to display Jewish nationalism. It was a thing of national pride and joy. It represented to them the Jewish nation. And this was all, goes back almost 150 years earlier. When the man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, he raised an army... And he drove the occupying Greeks out of Jerusalem. And in the process, he restored the temple. And as a result of what this man did, he was cheered and he was heralded with the waving of palm branches. So palm branches were an emblem for a conqueror for the nation of Israel. It was pointing to someone who would conquer. And they ultimately... these. Branches became associated with what the Messiah would do. In waving the palms before Jesus, listen, the crowd was showing their political designs for Jesus. That's what was happening. 
We would absolutely identify with what they were saying and how they were praising God. Yes, Hosanna. Yes, blessed is he who comes. Yes, even the king. Yes, our hearts. But there was another agenda driving what was coming from this crowd. It seems that this crowd was fully expecting Jesus to claim the outright title of Messiah. And with that, they were expecting the imminent call to arms. To take up the sword. They all thought Roman rule was about to be over as Jesus would raise an army and drive them out. And that again, that idea was reinforced by their shouts and cries. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. There was a political agenda that was driving what, what was going on here. That actual phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was actually taken from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This was one of the messianic psalms that was, would have been sung during Passover. So that did have a context here. Do you know what Hosanna means? We often kind of use it as it's an expression of praise. And in an indirect way it is. But actually, Hosanna means save us. So they're basically shouting and singing out what Psalm 118 was saying. Hosanna means save us. And actually, in the context of this verse, it means That wasn't on my fault. <laughs> It means, save us now. The crowd was exuberant. The crowd was excited. Finally, the Messiah has come who will save us. And he's going to do that now. But they didn't seem to understand. Certainly the disciples didn't, and we're told that. They didn't understand the full implication of what was going on till later, till Jesus was glorified, meaning till Jesus suffered and died and was raised. They didn't seem to understand the importance that Jesus went and grabbed a donkey and sat on it and he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. Maybe they were able to filter out the implications of that. Maybe they just didn't want to think about what that meant. See, Jesus in that moment when he got onto that donkey, he was fulfilling one of the most important prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. It was a prophecy that had been made 500 years earlier in Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, John here is making the connection between the prophecy in Zechariah and Jesus' triumphant entry here. By riding in on a donkey, Jesus was rejecting the political aspirations that people would have been tied, would be tying to him. 
He was refusing to fit their expectations of what the Messiah would be, and most importantly, what they thought the Messiah was going to do. They would have thought, surely the Messiah would come riding a noble horse with the sword in his hand. He would be more in line with what Judas Maccabeus did, seizing control, driving the, the, the awful uh, people out. Instead, Jesus came riding in humility on a simple donkey. I mean, isn't... <laughs> Don't we see Jesus doing this over and over? He just shatters our expectations. He just, he's so countercultural. He's countercultural then, he's countercultural. We just, how we think about things, he just comes and he just blows all that up. He came riding a donkey, and a donkey, we may, you know, I, I don't know about you, but my impression about donkeys is not a favorable. <laughs> Um, but they weren't considered that back then. Actually, they were considered to be a, a sign or symbolic of peace. So instead of a sword, he came with peace. It would take a few days for this to really sink in, but when they realized Jesus wasn't going to fulfill their desire for military and political conquest, they would turn on him. They would begin to see he wasn't what they thought he was, or more accurately, he wasn't what they wanted him to be. So when Jesus was actually arrested, the crowd must have felt a certain sense of being betrayed because there had been many false messiahs who had come and claimed to be the messiah, but it always ended poorly and ended badly. And so here's Jesus, who, who they all thought was the messiah, and then he gets arrested. And he becomes subject to, to the religious leaders, and he becomes subject to the Roman state, and whatever they would decide, his fate would be decided by them. And so these people, praising and calling out to Jesus here in John 12, would certainly have been part of the crowd calling for Jesus' crucifixion in chapter 19. Now, now let me just kind of a side note here, because I know some people, especially in the last few years, some people have, have tried to make a point of saying that it was not the same crowd. There are articles written, there was debates going on. Um, let, let me just say a, a few things about that. First, this is not a primary issue. If you disagree with me, we're not going to argue about it, okay? It doesn't rise to that level. Second, as I considered this, I did not find the argument convincing that the crowd at the triumphant entry was different than the crowd shouting crucify him in chapter 19. For one thing, it seems we are meant to see how fickle the people are and how quickly they turn on Jesus, I mean, we know that the religious leaders were trying to undermine Jesus everywhere along the way. You have to know when Jesus was actually arrested, they were saying, see, we told you this guy's no good. We told you this guy isn't the one. Kind of stirring the people up. They would have been encouraged by the religious leaders to reject Jesus. But we are to see that the people turned on Jesus when he would not be the kind of Messiah they wanted. 
They thought Jesus was about to bring military and political victory, but he ends up arrested and imprisoned. And they quickly conclude that Jesus must not be the one. He must be a false messiah. And their degree of enthusiasm that they poured out on him when he came into Jerusalem, they turned into anger against him when he was standing before Pilate. That's the power of emotions swaying people. When people don't meet expectations. So, with that as an explanation of this context, of what's happening here, of his triumphal entry, and it was a triumphal entry, and we would agree with so much, but there were other things going on here that we probably should not be in agreement with. So, with that as an explanation, what are the implications of Jesus' triumphant entry? You know, anytime you're looking at Scripture, and whether it's, it's, it's more uh, didactic or teaching, or whether it's an event or his, it's historical, it's always important to ask the question, why is that here? Why is that in the Bible? What's it serving? What's its purpose? Why did God want us to know this? Okay? That's an important part of understanding Scripture. We can't always know that you know, clearly, but we need to spend time thinking about that and processing that, okay? So, why is this here? What are the implications here? Well, as is true, again, just reminding us, do you know what this whole series is about? I don't know, is it up on there? You know, come and see and behold that you may believe. That, that's why everything's recorded in the Gospel of John, so that we would see Jesus, we would know Jesus, and we would believe in Jesus. So that's, that's the bare minimum, which was probably enough in itself. But it is so that we could know and see and believe in Jesus. So what does this account tell us about Jesus? Just three things quickly. Number one, Jesus refuses a worldly agenda. Jesus refuses a worldly agenda. We know and we believe that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom one day. That is part of our hope. That is part of what he promises. But that is not what was specifically happening at this time. Happening at this time. We have seen this time after time in the Gospel of John. The crowds and even his own disciples... They desired a strong leader who would rid them of Roman rule. Matter of fact, just right before this, we find out in Matthew that the sons of Zebedee, James and John's mother, go to Jesus and say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, make sure my sons are on either side. They were all still thinking this is a kingdom coming then. A physical kingdom that was coming. They were looking for a king riding a horse with a sword in his hand, calling people to arms. What they got was a humble man riding a simple donkey, calling people to believe in him. Jesus just would not take on the military and political agenda that people expected of him. And well, I'm so glad he didn't. Jesus clearly told his disciples before he even got to Jerusalem. They were on their way to Jerusalem. And in Matthew 20, it says this, Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. So he wanted to have 
an important, I mean, he, he, all these people are around. He said, come, on, come, come with me, man. And he goes over here and he says, I want, to have, I want to talk to you. I want you to hear this. We're meant to see that emphasis. And he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. For us, 2,000 years later, this seems pretty obvious. You, you would think if we were there, we would have got this, right? Well, probably not. We have 2,000 years of history. We have the Spirit who, is, who makes, who, who quickens and helps us to understand and see these things. They just didn't seem to comprehend what Jesus was saying. He, he was saying, listen, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to Jerusalem to start a revolution to overthrow Roman power. I am going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and then to be raised again. He wasn't going to establish an earthly kingdom then and there, but to establish a spiritual kingdom that would pave the way one day when he would come again and his earthly kingdom would fully and finally be established. Again, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. But, but listen to what Jesus said in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. From our perspective, again, it seems obvious what Jesus was about. But the disciples themselves kept tripping over that. Their own desires their own expectations, the filter through which they were even hearing Jesus that seemed to be filtering out these things they didn't want to hear. And then with the crowds that were swept along by their hope that, that he would actually end Roman rule, surely someone who can raise someone from the dead can kick out the Romans. But Jesus never wavered. Jesus stayed on mission. Jesus would not be diverted from His purpose. And what was that purpose? Luke tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, listen, and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. They're all saying the same thing. The people were looking for Jesus to take up their agenda and lead them in battles. 
His miracles got their attention and stirred that hope in them. But instead of humbling themselves before Jesus, instead of coming and listening to Jesus and asking Jesus what he was about, instead of coming to Jesus to worship him and love him, they came wanting a fight and wanting Jesus to serve them. Isn't that easy for us to do? To have a Jesus that serves us. To have a Jesus that fits neatly into our agenda. Do we see Jesus as a means for our own success? A means for our our security? Do you see Jesus as a means to gain what we want or to give us what we expect from life, the kind of life that we want? Listen, these things creep in easily. It is easy to see Jesus as a means to our own end instead of understanding we serve Him. Jesus continues to refuse to fit into our boxes, to serve our whims, Or our agendas. It is our place to come to him. And humble ourselves. To listen to him. To worship him. And to love him. Jesus triumphal entry also shows us this. That Jesus continued his purposeful journey toward the cross. Again part of the reason for Jesus triumphal entry. Is to force the hand of the religious leaders. See, they're going to have to respond to this. They're already really uncomfortable. They're already scheming to try to to end Jesus and quiet Jesus. And now Jesus is going to force this. He's going to make all of this come out. He's going to make them actually do something. They had to respond to this clear act of defiance of their power and of their position and of their status. Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And here again, they speak more truth than they even realize, than they even know, because we know that Jesus didn't come to just rescue this small nation situated on a small strip of land in Western Asia. He came to rescue his people from their sin in every tribe, in every nation, throughout the world. Listen, and he did this willingly. I think we need to see something of the power that's being demonstrated truly as we get further into this last week of Jesus life this will come up again and again his strength his authority that was on display uh, in his in the inquisition in the questioning in the trials that were against him but even now we want to be clear about something Jesus death was not determined by the forces of evil Jesus death was not determined by the schemes of the religious leaders Jesus' death was not determined by the cries of the people to crucify him. Jesus' death was not determined by the cruel Roman soldiers. Jesus' death was determined by God the Father and was granted by the will of God the Son. Jesus was not left to the mercy of powers and events and people. He was actually driving it all. He was actually displaying divine power. John 10, 18 says this. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. 
Jesus is saying, I'm not being swept along by forces I can't control. Jesus is actually saying, I do control those forces. And I am willing to go down this, this direction. Jesus dying was not plan B for the Lord. In Acts 2, we hear this incredible confession. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What's central in that whole thing is it was driven by God. It was God's definite plan. It was God's foreknowledge that was determining all that was going on. I think we see in Jesus this glorious Lord. And it's so very easy for us to think of our lives as being at the mercy of forces and people and powers. That our steps each day are arbitrary. That our path is unknown and uncertain. But the one who intentionally, purposefully moved toward the cross to sacrifice himself for us, to sacrifice himself in our place, to sacrifice himself for our sin, he is the one who controls our life this day. He is the one who controls us. So please hear this. Your steps this day, tomorrow, next week, next year, they're in His hands. They serve His purpose. And we can trust Him. This is true. It's interesting. It's been in our time of prayer this morning. This was prayed. This was mentioned. Isn't this really one of the great struggles of the Christian heart? That we can actually trust the Lord with our lives. That our next step is in His hand. That the step behind us we can trust Him with. That what's going to happen a year from now we can trust Him with. Isn't that one of the struggles we all deal with? That our lives are in His hands. That no matter what happens to us, whether good or bad, whatever may come our way, He is really driving it. And He is good. Hear the psalmist. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps Secure. It goes on and talks about, and he put a new song in my heart, a song of praise to him. He rescues us. He plants our feet on strong ground. He makes our very steps secure. Proverbs tells us this again and again. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We may think we're controlling, but it is the Lord who establishes our steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. What a tremendous difference it makes when we see that. When we see that Jesus commands every part of our life. 
that nothing comes to us that doesn't first go through Him. May the Lord work rest and growing confidence in our hearts for the one who purposed to give his life for us, the one who was displaying in a, in a real sense his d- divinity, that he was God, that he had this authority. He is the one who continues to exercise that in our lives. Listen, your steps are not determined by you. They're not determined by the forces of evil. Your path is solid with the Lord because you're his children. Finally, we see this. Jesus will always have witnesses. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The crowd who saw Jesus do what he did with Lazarus continued to talk about what Jesus did with Lazarus. That's what the word witness there. Actually, that word witness is the word we get martyr from. This is what the word witness means. It is when someone can positively affirm that he or she has seen or heard something that he knows by first-hand experience. That's what witnessing is. It's the same word that was used in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice notice something very important here about that verse. Notice what the power of the Spirit is connected to. The power received in this specific reference is tied to our witness. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit and the result will be, you will be my witness. Certainly we understand the Spirit does so much more, but this specific reference is to the power the Spirit of God brings into our witness as followers of Christ. And if you are actually to follow through really the rest of the book of Acts, which really is, you know, some people call it the Acts of the Apostles, it's really the Acts of the Spirit what the Spirit is doing to build the church. It is about how the Spirit was enabling the people of God to be bold witnesses. That's what the book of Acts is about. We see that again and again. We don't see a lot of creativity. We don't see a lot of the things that we think are so important. We just see people in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, being bold to say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's interesting, you don't find in Acts, you you find a growing persecution that starts against the way, the Christian movement, so to say. And you never find a prayer of the people saying, Lord, please deliver us from this persecution. What you find again and again is, Lord, make us bold. Make us bold. That's the work that Spirit does in His people. Family, we have been given the same Spirit who does the same thing in us. He empowers us to be bold witnesses to Him, to Jesus. 
We are empowered to tell people what we know to be true from what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have personally experienced. We have been empowered by the Spirit to tell people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know this. We have seen this personally. We've been empowered to tell people there is forgiveness with God through Jesus' death on the cross because we have experienced that forgiveness and we enjoy that forgiveness in our life. We can tell people you can be adopted into God's family. You can be a child of the living God because we've been adopted. We can tell people that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life because we have met him in that way ourselves. We can tell people they must be born again because we have experienced that new life. We don't do this with arrogance. Like, hey, I've got it all figured out because we know none of us figured it out. God had mercy on us. He saved us. He opened our hearts. He opened our minds so we would believe. And he tells us that he proclaimed that the gospel goes forward and he calls people to himself through the witness of his people, through the preaching of the gospel, through the teaching of the word and the witness of the, of the church as a whole. So we aren't arrogant like, hey, we figured this out. But rather with love, with joy and humility, we witness with the confidence that the gospel truly is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. You know what? That's why we're not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's effectual. It actually saves. And we, think about this. We are witnesses of this. We are witnesses of this. Our job isn't to convince people. I've been around a lot of Christians who think they got to strong arm things. It's not to convict people, certainly of sin, because we can't do that. It's not to conjole people. Our job is to bear a faithful, understandable, and compelling witness to Christ. That is what we are called to do. It is to be able, as, as Scripture tells us, it is to be able to give a defense of the hope that is in us. That we are ready to give a defense of the hope that's within us. Wherever we are. May we daily ask the Lord that we may see the power of the Spirit to make us effective witnesses for Him. Can we make that part of our daily prayers? I was just, again, personally convicted by this this week. Lord, make my witness of you powerfully effective this day. We share Christ in the power of the Spirit, and we leave the results up to Him. We just, we have to, or we'll go crazy. And it will, it will become manipulative, and it's even easy to become abusive. We share the gospel and the power and just leave the results up to him. So Jesus' triumphal entry helps us see Jesus so very clearly. His refusal to take up a worldly agenda is purposely driven towards the cross. But you know, when Jesus comes again, 
it's going to be different. His entry will be very different, and the results will be very different. Listen to Revelation 19. And I hope this just fills your heart with joy and anticipation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, here's how Revelation ends, verse, chapter 22. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the, Omalf, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20, listen. He who testifies to, this thing, to these things says, Surely I am. I'm coming soon. And it ends with this. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.